The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hello to you and you and especially you. I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm Russ Matthews. And welcome to episode 107 of The Big Picture for the week, the week beginning May 15 and coming up on today's show... How scared should you be that Keanu Reeves has returned as the hardcore assassin in John Wick 2? Get Out is one of 2017's strangest movies, and we will be listing off what are the best sequels ever. I repeat, the best sequels ever. Can't wait for this list. Yeah. Uh, movies, Russ, what's in cinema? Well, released last Thursday, Goldie Hawn and Amy Schumer are in Snatched, the new mother-daughter comedy. Back up a bit, Russ. Goldie Hawn. Goldie Hawn's back. 80, 70s, 80s comedy queen Goldie Hawn. <laughs> right. Back on screen. She's back on screen with Amy, the, the new kind of uh, comedy She's She is the kind of new legend. Goldie Hawn. Like she the, is. the pairing seems all right, but I'd imagine this is a pretty crass... Like strongly worded uh, yeah. mother daughter comedy. Anytime Amy makes it on screen, I, it usually definitely tends to be a bit crass. But we'll find out. We'll but find snatched out. is at cinemas now. Yeah, we are. And then also the the director of The Man from Uncle and Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. Guy Ritchie, yep. has a go at another segment of history and fantasy with King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Are you guys pumped about King Arthur, Legend of the Sword? No. I no, love I, Guy Ritchie. I really love Guy Ritchie as a director, but I'm not too sure about this film, but we'll see. Agreed. Agreed. Especially when it's called Legend of the... It doesn't need that extra bit, right? <laughs> it really doesn't, does it? No. Okay. What about the small screen, Ben? What's on TV? Gentlemen, I've got something amazing to talk about very amazing. soon. But before that, Ask the Doctor is a new series that's uh, <laughs> happening from Tuesday night, May 16th, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock on ABC. It's some 12-part factual series. Seems to be innovative, possibly fun. Who knows about our nation's health and the latest in medical treatments. I'm trying to push past Ask the Doctor. It's on TV. You might want to watch it because what I really want to talk about is May 22. Ah, it's uh, in my diary already. May 22 is in your diary. It's I think it's in most people's diaries, May 22. <laughs> but, but I know what you're going to say. But what's happening on May 22, Sam, is the, the return. Voice. No, um, <laughs> Twin Peaks is the back. return of Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks on Stan, the streaming service. We clearly, Sam and I are hoping it's going to bring Twin Peakness back in a massive, Twick massive Peakness. way. Where's it going to go? That's what I'm wondering. Where's it going to go? We'll be talking a bit more about it on the show in the coming weeks, probably every week for a while. We'll be yes. talking about yes. it. It's 18 episodes, and one it's, a week. And it's, it's going to be a long fed. conversation. That's right. So that's one 22 May. That's 22 May, Twin Peaks. Put it's it in your coming. diaries. All right. Well, enough Twin Peaks chat for this week. More next week. Uh, true or false question, Ben? Yeah, we're up to true or false time. Very soon, Russ, you're going to be talking to us about this new movie called Viceroy's House. Yes, which Viceroy's is House. set in India, which got me thinking about the Indian film industry. And actually, later in the show, for a really special event on the big picture, we're going to have a live press record interview with a real-life... Indian actress. She's actually Australian-born Indian heritage. She's acted in India and in Australia. Xenia Star is coming. Before wow. we get to, before we get there, for true or false this week, okay. got me thinking about Bollywood, which is the kind of affectionate mm. name for the Indian film industry. You, if you've not seen an Indian film, you probably would have heard of Bollywood, I think. Bollywood actually makes more movies than Hollywood every year. It's the biggest film industry in the world. Hold on, it makes more? Makes more mm. movies and it wow. sells more than 4 billion movie tickets a year. That's how big Bollywood is. Man. Increasingly, okay. there's a bit of a crossover happening between Hollywood and Bollywood with stars appearing from the West going across mm. to Bollywood. But that's not a new thing. Here's the true or false. Which one of these actors did this crossover in a Bollywood film almost one decade ago? Was it Gwyneth Paltrow 
or Matt Damon or Sylvester Stallone or Colin Firth? Which one of those actors appeared in a Bollywood film about a decade ago? That's quite a list. I'm going to say decade ago, Gwyneth. You will find out after this. All right. What do Downton Abbey and the X-Files have to do with the history of India? I don't really know. This is a question I've never asked anyone as well. I don't think anyone's ever asked that before. What's the answer? Well, the answer is that stars from both of those TV shows are in this new film called Viceroy's House, which is located amid the significant transition to independence that British India made in 1947. Viceroy's House showcases the political and the personal ramifications of this historical event. I am to be the last Viceroy of India, and I shall carry out the role with great pride. You're giving a nation back to its people. How bad can it be? You're in the future. We are. Then let's not make a mess of it. Chief Kumasa. He's the new boy. We have something in common there. You think India is ready to rule itself? We've learned from the best. All right, we're beginning to take them back to 1947, and the inhabitants of India had something happen to them at that point that changed pretty much the world's history in so many different mm. ways. What occurred, what was occurring was that in three, after 300 years of rule of the land of India, England actually decided to divest its, its interests in India and actually allow it to have its own independence once again. And so it's a tr- true-to-life story, Viceroy's house is a true-to-life story of the Mountbattens, or Lord Mountbatten and his family. <laughs> Such an English name. <laughs> Lord Mountbatten. Lord uh-huh. Mountbatten. And who's played by um, Hugh Bonneville. Downton Abbey's Down own Abbey. Hugh Bonneville. And the wife is played by Gillian Anderson. The X-Files' the own Gillian. That's all coming yeah, together now. The connection. But really, those two aspects really don't play too much into <laughs> Okay. Viceroy's House, interestingly enough. So what's Viceroy's House about? But what it's about is really their kind of experience in handing over um, rule of the country of India back to the Indian people. Right, the British experience uh, of that. British experience yep. of that. And so it, we go through and be able to see that. It's really fascinating history. But then also within that, what, what we have, what we see is um, uh, Gurinda, Gurinda Chada? Chata? Yeah, the sure. director, Gurinda Chada. Who made Bend It Like Beckham. Bend It Like Beckham. Mm, yeah, yes. she's actually the director of this film. It is a very personal story for her. And she also was able to bring in kind of it's a fictional love story almost a Romeo and Juliet type story right. that occurs to be able to show and kind of give you the experience of the personal impact of the division what ended up becoming the division of India and Pakistan originally in 1947 it's really it was one country and then at this point it became two different countries so Russ am I correct in trying to guess that Viceroy's House is shooting to be one of those movies that's both educational and entertaining but how does it stop or does it stop from being just a docudrama, like just some kind of stiff upper lip British thing document about what happened in 1947, does it actually become more entertaining than that? It, it definitely does, or at least that's really what they're striving to do with this film. I mean, it was really fascinating history. It's something that I really didn't know that much about. I didn't even realize that this actually occurred in 1947. So it's fascinating to kind of watch it. And they bring in old footage, be able to kind of go through. And so that could kind of point towards a docudrama. Yes. But because of um, Chada's desire to really kind of have a personal stake in it, also because of her own personal story and her heritage, what they were able to do is bring in this love story. Right. Now, 
before I get to my next question, can I just point out, gentlemen, Viceroy's House is one of the most boring titles for a movie I've heard for ages. But seriously. <laughs> about a dog's purpose. A dog's a purpose dog's that purpose. we talked about on the show last week. Go and check out my review for how much I did not like that movie, <laughs> including right. its title. I should have added I don't like its title. Viceroy's House, though, is more boring than A Dog's Purpose. I'm not sure what's going to get people in the door to see Viceroy's House. Oh though Russ but you keep mentioning that the director Grinda Charter it's a very personal thing for her like passion project right. for her and there's a personal side to Viceroy's house what's it actually like so all these big events are going on but what's the personal bit like well what they do is really try and show the, a personal relationship between two servants in the home one male one female as far as going through and looking at their impact and also they're having a love relationship but they come from different backgrounds and I don't know if you know the division between Pakistan and India really came come down to religious lines right and that Pakistan was really established for the Muslim community and then also all the other faiths actually went kind of down the India, going to India. And so one, in this love story, we have the woman who's from a Muslim heritage and then also the uh, young man who's actually from a a Hindu background and seeing their love kind of torn apart within that. And so, um, and kind of seeing the dividing line and kind of that personal, personal nature of it. So you say that Viceroy's house is really about this separation of countries on religious grounds. Uh, is there anything to learn about faith and spiritual matters and in, in the impact on people's lives? Does that come to the fore in yeah. Viceroy's house? Um, it, it definitely does because of the kind of the dividing line that occurs within the countries. And so definitely there's a discussion about the world faith. Christianity doesn't really play a huge um, part in the whole story. It's understandable given the part of the world that it's in. Yeah, exactly. But but if you look at the fact, that even the statistics showing that about 93% of the population of the world uh, has some sort of faith position. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of this and be able to kind of consider what this is about, I think one of the, the key things, is, the question that gets asked is, what are you willing to do for your faith? That gets uh, asked in Viceroy's house. It, well, it, it, it doesn't really get asked, but you really have to be confronted with that because you have to determine, people have to make a deciding factor. If they're going to go to Pakistan, if they're going to stay in India, even if they're, they've lived in the, the region that was in Pakistan or in India. And so to kind of consider looking at what are you willing to do for your faith, it really kind of gets put to the forefront. Or are, you, are you willing to move geographically? How is it going to impact you from a relational standpoint, also to the point of life and death, because there actually, I didn't realize that there was so much in the way of kind of people dying for the sake of wanting to either stay where they were um, and opposed to having to go based on kind of the lines of faith. So I think that really kind of where, what are you willing to do for the sake of your faith? Viceroy's House stars Gillian Anderson and Hugh Bonneville. It's released this Thursday, May 18th, and it's rated PG for mild themes. Now we need to get to our true or false answer. We sure do. So we've just come out of Viceroy's House set in India, 1947. Got me thinking about the Indian film industry, affectionately known as Bollywood, which is bigger than Hollywood. And Hollywood stars have been starring in Bollywood movies for some time now, including one actor almost a decade ago. Was it Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Sylvester Stallone, Colin Firth? I'm going to have to go with Colin Firth. I just think that maybe the whole Bride and Prejudice thing or something like that, I don't know. So. Oh, going from Bride, Pride and Prejudice Pride. to Bride and Prejudice? Okay. Yeah. And again, Gwyneth, because she was big 10 years ago. Ah, uh, gentlemen. <laughs> so was a little guy you might like to call Sylvester Stallone. What? Oh, you Sylvester Stallone, he, <laughs> appeared, he appeared as himself oh, man. in the Indian romantic drama, which romantic I can't pronounce. Drama? Uh, in, like It must be a Hindi, I think, title. I can't pronounce that. In English, it's called Damned Love. It was oh. out in 2009. Search for it. Sylvester Stallone starring as himself in an Indian movie. All right, coming up on The Big Picture, we're about to interview an Australian actress who has worked in the Indian film industry before Ben has a go at explaining one of 2017's biggest and oddest movies, Get Out.
Welcome back to the show. Before the break, Russ was sharing some insights into Indian history from the new movie Viceroy's House. But Russ has another link to India and cinema. On the line is Xenia Starr, a friend of Russ's who is an Australian-born actress with an Indian heritage. As a special treat for our press record segment this week, we are speaking live with Xenia about her experiences in Bollywood, as well as recently working with big stars Dev Patel, Jason Isaacs and Army Hammer. Hello, Xenia. Hi, how are you? Hey, Xenia. Thanks so much for being here today. And uh, also, we, we just want to kind of introduce people to you. I mean, introduce uh, our audience to you. So tell us a little bit about your career in TV and films, what projects maybe you've been a part of? Sure. So, to be honest, my career in TV and film was started accidentally. I was trained as a physiotherapist and um, did a few short hobby courses at NIDA through their open program. And my father, who used to be on Indian television, came along and saw some of my performances and was moved and insisted that I try my hand at the performing arts. So, um, yeah, it basically started from me doing a few courses and then somehow during the course of that, um, uh, I was contacted by a director and asked to audition for a film, Backyard Ashes, um, which I did and got the part and it sort of just took off from there. And, and Backyard Ashes, that was made here in Australia, wasn't it, Zinia? That's correct. It yeah. was shot in Wagga Wagga. Yeah, oh, great, <laughs> Wagga Wagga. Um, I, but you've also been in some Indian projects, which we're going to get onto in a minute. But I'm very interested in a movie that you were recently involved with, Zinia. I'm from Adelaide, and I noticed on IMDb <laughs> that Hotel Mumbai was shot in Adelaide, even though Hotel Mumbai is about the true story of the uh, terrorist attacks that happened in Mumbai in 2008 and the victims and survivors of that. And in that movie was Lions Dev Patel and Harry there's Jason Isaacs and Social Network's Army Hammer, but it was all filmed in South Australia. What is going on, Xenia, with Hotel Mumbai? I know, it's a small world, really. I think aeroplanes have changed the way movies are made. You yeah, a little bit. in one place, one moment, <laughs> and you can be in the room next door on set in a completely different country. So Adelaide's definitely on... It's, it's found its way on the international stage. There are a lot of films coming out of Adelaide and the new studios built there, and Hotel Mumbai is one of them. And we shot that... Um, in Adelaide uh, mid last year, actually. And when, when's it coming out? Can you tell us much about well, it? Well, I'm not 100% sure when exactly it's coming out, but I've been told this year, probably towards the second half of the year. Excellent. Right. Now, one of, the, one of the other questions we had for you, coming from an Australian background, but also having Indian heritage, what are some of the differences that kind of stand out for you between the Indian film industry and your experiences that you've had here in Australia? Well, it's funny, um, you know, each film, even within its own industry, uh, has its own signature and its own flavor and its own style. So within your particular industry, you'll find differences between films there and across culturally even more so. And in Mm. India, you know, from my experience working in India, I found that there are always huge volumes of people on set volumes that you just don't see on Australian sets, regardless of their production value. And, um, and, you know, the way they do sound and music and the way they decorate scenes is different also. We find Indian cinema to be a little bit more celebratory and bold with um, their artistic flair in terms of, you know, set design and costuming and um, even sound. We don't really use sync sound like we do on set in Australia or in the States where you have a mic attached to you and you pick up sound. We do that in India, but everything is done again in ADR, so we redub films 
all over again in the studio. Now, Xenia, some of those words were kind of technical speak, but in short, I think what I'm understanding is when you work in Bollywood, it's a little bit like watching many Bollywood films. They're bigger and bolder and some might say better than other <laughs> movies made around the world. But very quickly, uh, to, to finish off with you, Xenia, thanks so much for sharing your time with The Big Picture. We have a question for you, which is, as a Christian, mm-hmm. what's your experience been like in the filmmaking industries, particularly when you're working in a country like India that's so spiritually diverse? I think Christianity and faith is something I can carry with me everywhere I go, and it doesn't change, you know, um, based on the land that I'm in or I'm working. Um, I, I do think in India, because people have such a strong religious um, history and, and religion is part of everyday life there, on sets, you know, you do see prayer done in the morning or or the breaking of a coconut, you know, which is a ritual for prosperity and good wishes for the film production of a morning, which perhaps we don't see on Australian and Western film sets as something you keep at home. Um, But otherwise, people in the film industry, I find creatives are very open and and they're constantly thinking about life and what, what is it really about? You know, what's my purpose? What's the meaning to everything we're doing? We're constantly studying characters and stories and places and you know, reflecting. And so, you know, everyone's got a bit of an open mind and it, it's quite refreshing. Mm-hmm. Zinnia Star, Bollywood and Australian actress, thank you so much for joining us on The Big Picture. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Well, one of the movies this year that has critics falling over themselves with high praise, if that's possible to fall over yourself with high praise, is a low-profile movie that defies easy description. It's called Get Out, and it's a surreal horror comedy about an African-American guy, his white girlfriend, and what happens when he meets her parents. Ben's still trying to get his head around this movie, Get Out, and the notable way it has a go at racism. You got your toothbrush? Check. Do you have your deodorant? Check. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know? Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bruh. Meeting family and taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. So, gentlemen, Get Out is directed and written by a guy called Jordan Peele, right. who like, some people might have caught up with his comedy show called Key and Peele that he does with his mm. longtime offsider Keegan Michael Key. Basically, Jordan Peele is a guy on the rise and rise. This is actually his directorial debut. This is his first film. That's right, wow. as a director. Based on 230 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a big online website that pulls together reviews from all around the world, yep. 230 reviews. This movie is up at 99% average, Whoa, as in wow. basically 230 reviews are giving this 5 out of 5. It's like kind of up there with with the Oscar winner this year, Moonlight, in terms of like how well it's been <laughs> reviewed. Get out. Get out. <laughs> get out. Instead, get in. And where we're about to get into is... Chris is the main character in this, played by an actor called Daniel Kaluuya. His girlfriend is Rose. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya is African-American. Rose is a white chick, Alison Williams. They go off to meet her parents who, who live in this, like, kind of middle-of-the-country place. Her parents are played by Bradley Whitford, who I reckon is still best known for The West Wing. Uh, he plays Dean, her dad. Missy is played by a great actress called Catherine Keener. And it gets weird from there in a great way. Well, because I saw this as well, Ben, and I've been struggling to describe it to people. So how do you kind of sum this whole thing up? Guys, this is one of those movies that's really difficult to summarize without 
either ruining the plot, what's going on, or diminishing what the film actually is. It is something of a surreal horror comedy, and there is some strong violence and horror themes, particularly the longer the film goes along. It is rated MA15+, but it's not as in your face as I expected it to be, given the reviews are talking it up as like this modern horror classic, which I think it is, but it's more chilly and terrifying and also weird and funny all at the same time, rather than it is just like deep down in the pit of your stomach, like, you know, going to haunt your dreams kind of right. that kind of movie. And somehow it chucks in everything from like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner to Stepford Wives to Evil Dead. Like all those kind of movies are somehow oh, wow. angled. And yet that's oh, not my. doing, I don't think it's doing justice to what right. this movie actually is. And Jordan Peele, hats off to this guy for being able to pull in all these great traditional horror elements like tension and camera angles and creepy looks and creepy people and creepy situations but then he does it in this really hard to define setting of a constant undercurrent of racial warfare Mm -hmm. all in get out and it's super entertaining and you will not pick where it's going right well well well, that's interesting because you really look at all there's so many different movies that have come out over this past year especially in the u.s about u.s race relations Mm. Uh, does get out really stand out or is it just simply weird Russ, you are correct in pointing out that this year has had loads of movies about race relations in the US. If you go back to thebigpicturewebsite.com, you'll see our reviews of movies like Fences and Hidden Figures that were set in the past but were about race relations in the US. The fact that Get Out is weird isn't its only point of difference. Uh, I think it was really refreshing that it's not a true life story set in the civil rights backdrop or people doing it tough and overcoming opposition. One of the great things about Get Out is it's an original story, it's an original idea, and somehow Jordan Peele, writer and director, has been able to sweep across the entire history, I thought, of US race relations, everything from slavery to the civil rights movement to contemporary underlying concerns that racism actually keeps going. And one of the things that Get Out does really well is it takes aim at smug, intelligent, rich, educated white people for the fact that they may have a form of racism going on in them that they might not want to recognize or call it that, But they've got this weird... I saw a reviewer describe it as this weird racism that's like a peculiar form of envy Hmm. for the uh, the other race. All of that is going on in Get Out, and it's an amazing horror comedy movie. Now, you've talked a lot about how it's hard to describe this film to people exactly what it is. What do you think that Get Out is trying to get at? Great question. And I like like trying to describe the movie. The more I've thought about it, A, I'm finding it difficult to summarise and kind of get to the point and what I think it's all about. And not every movie you can do that on. And Get Out is a good example of it where you don't have to be able to walk away and say, I can summarise that movie in 25 words or less. And it's a movie that the more I've thought about it, the better it gets. And it was great when I was there. But the more I think about it, the more I just think, wow, this thing is amazing. What do I think it's getting at? Somehow, I think it's getting at this this idea that um, racism can come from, often usually comes from a point of superiority and racial domination. But what Get Out, where it comes from at that point is saying that that racism is fueled by jealousy. It's almost like a backhanded compliment to say, I actually think your race is better than mine, but let me control your race for my benefit. And the way that Get Out does that is just like, it's just incredible. But I'm struggling to like put all this together about where I go to from here, mm. where I go to from here. Because when I go to God's word, I see nothing in there about the domination of other races and right. even like a po- the possible time in your life when you would ever consider that one race is better than another. I just, I just don't see that in there. So I don't think Get Out is pushing me towards, you know, it's not upholding this position in any way, shape or form, but it's not really giving me anywhere to go mm. either. So I raced back to God's word, had a good think about it, didn't really come up with a strong conclusion there. 
what Get Out will leave you with is mulling over these big issues and the fact it confronts that this is happening still in this world today. Hmm. Well, Get Out is now showing in cinemas and it stars Daniel Kalua, um, Alison Williams and also Bradley Whitford. It's rated MA for strong themes. Mm-hmm. Now, coming up on the big picture, a soundtrack spin guaranteed to make you funkier instantly. Funkier instantly, Funky. apparently, Woo. allegedly. And Russ manned up to check out Keanu Reeves' return in the ultraviolet John Wick Chapter 2. Welcome back to The Big Picture. And welcome to a window into the collective think tank that is The Big Picture. For soundtrack (laughs) segment this week, where we play cool sounds from Big Pictures, this is how we got to what we're about to play. Right, so earlier in the show, Russ reviewed Viceroy's House. That's directed by Gorinda Charter. The movie soundtrack Viceroy's House is super boring, but... Charter also directed Bendit Light Beckham. That movie Mm. had a soundtrack, and on that soundtrack was... Just move on up toward your destination. Though you may find from time to time complication. Do 
So, gentlemen, I think it's official that we are instantly funkier oh, yeah. than we oh. were like a couple of minutes ago. That was fantastic. Mm-hmm. That Curtis Mayfield tune, uh, Move On Up. Move On Up. Funkalicious. Funkalicious, yep. yeah. Move On Up from Curtis Mayfield's 1970s debut album, humbly titled Curtis. That's right. <laughs> That's where Move On Up came from. Um, I think, though, in movie circles, Curtis Mayfield is probably best known for this amazing soundtrack that he wrote for a film called Superfly back in the 70s. This is kind of groovy Ooh, yeah. anti-drugsploitation yeah. um, hip cat movie from the 70s, Superfly. That is funky like you wouldn't believe that soundtrack. That Ugh. thing is is amazing. But, uh, Superfly, Curtis Mayfield. Anyway, move it. on up. That's on the soundtrack of Bend It Like Beckham. It's also been on the soundtrack to a couple of other movies that you probably haven't really thought of for years because you didn't really like them first time around, like Semi Pro, that Will Ferrell oh, well, basketball Ferrell. movie, <laughs> Fighting with Channing Tatum that mm. came out in 2009. But a show that you definitely should have thought about in recent memory because it was so great, The Wire. The Wire wire. featured Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield. So, gentlemen, cast your minds back a couple of years. I think it was about 2014. There was this movie called John Wick that Mm. came out that starred Keanu Reeves as an assassin. And that premise alone, that little summary statement, I'm not sure it really fired people up necessarily when they heard about it, but John Wick became a huge hit. And it taught a number of lessons to people from that film, including you don't kill a man's dog and you don't touch his 1969 Ford Mustang Mark I because otherwise some bad stuff is going to come your way. Russ has gone along and checked out the inevitable sequel, John Wick Chapter 2. So what lessons can we learn from the return of John Wick? Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. And what style? Tactical. Mr. Wick, do enjoy your party. All right. Not unlike the first chapter of John Wick, the second installment really kind of this magnificently choreographed violence, which is yeah, put, yeah. It's a stunt choreographer turned director Chad Stalinsky has been given the gift of the perfect material to deliver this perfect action flick. You think it's a perfect action flick? We'll, we'll get onto that, but we're going to give it. us what it's about. Yeah, but Keanu Reeves has found the right vehicle to really capitalize on his skills, and uh, we're going to be be talking about that a bit later, I think, in the show. But we'll kind of look at this and. John Wick is the ideal vehicle for really kind of the upward trajectory of this assassin who's really trying to get out of the assassin world. Okay, so for anyone who didn't see the original John Wick, John Wick is an assassin. Later in the show, we are going to be talking about Keanu Reeves. And for anyone who doesn't really know why Keanu Reeves is a big deal, stick around in the show. We're going to explain it. But now back to this character that Keanu Reeves is playing, John Wick. It's sounding to me already like you're liking the John Wick Chapter 2. You're describing it as a perfect action film. But is this a film for all adult viewers? It's MA15+, plus, right? Right. It's definitely MA15+. And, plus. and you said it's magnificently choreographed violence. Yeah, I know. I know. Russ, is this for all adult mm. viewers? No, it, you know, it truly... I mean, this is one that my wife would say, no, honey, you can go see this one on your own. But it's it's visceral, it's physical, it's violent. But it, I, it's hard to explain 
scene, and I've tried to do this in so many different ways when I went through and saw this film, that I don't, I don't sit there and really condone high levels of violence in films, but this one is just so amazingly choreographed throughout the whole thing that you can tell every single shot is so well thought out. But then also the introduction of Lawrence Fishburne, which he kind of comes in, kind of this introduced to kind of the Matrix reunion. The actor and, Lawrence Fishburne, Lawrence who was Fishburne. in the Matrix with Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. Wow. And also they kind of come together in this. So it's beautifully choreographed, but then also they introduce these great characters. And so throughout it, it's really well written, um, but it's also really nicely choreographed. And it's also set in the world of assassins. So you've got to expect a level of violence to turn up in an, in an yes, assassin movie. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is approach it with caution, though. It's, as much as it looks sounds like a piece of art, it's still hard hitting it and is. it's still a big body count. Yeah, so like the first one. The first one was pretty huge when it came to the amount of people that John Wick took out. Mm. This is one that you definitely want to put the warning label on that you know this is not necessarily for everyone and it's not necessarily one that we really condone violence, but it is one of those films that's really worth watching. I only checked out the first John Wick earlier in the week, oh, wow. uh, hearing that this sequel came out. I wasn't that inspired by it a couple of years ago, but found it to be similar to what you're describing about the, the second one, a really well-scripted, well-acted, tight-as-a-drum action movie. And that first one was driven purely by the notion of re- revenge, pretty much. Is this still the theme of the second one? Is John Wick again out for revenge? Um, it's kind of it's a yes or no answer to that because there's still, especially in the first element of it, there's really kind of this whole revenge and justice that he's really trying to get, take care of, kind of still. finish, it, still trying to finish that off. But then it moves into kind of moving. He's really striving to get out of the business that he's been a part of, and it really shows <laughs> the kind business. Of, that's the, such the a biz- polite <laughs> word for being a professional hitman. He's a professional hitman, but it is considered especially. He's not the, just trying to get out of accounting, Russ. Right. Like, he's not just trying to back out of work in the supermarket. But, it, but what's it's interesting like Jason Bourne or something like that. If you've seen like the first one and if you've seen this one, you see that the way that they treat it, it's as if it is this like massive business. It's a worldwide business that has all of these different components and elements. True, it's got that a very kind of imaginative into. take on the world of assassins. Right. That yes. is, uh, this underworld that we none of us probably in the real world would really know about, but that it actually exists. But yes, it does have revenge is there, justice is there, but really it kind of comes down to um, suffering from the consequences you make in your past. Oh, right. So lessons we're learning from John week chapter two i'm moving on from the first one which was don't kill a man's dog and don't steal his car this sounds a little bit deeper right that that, we're actually getting something deeper from this perfect action film in your words well with the depth because especially you can see it if you've seen the first one is the fact that he really wants to get out because he loves his wife and he decides to get out of this industry because of of that um but and then also that there's different things that occur within that but because of um, this decision, he had to do a few things to get out of that lifestyle and, and make some decisions that actually come back to haunt him in John Wick Chapter 2. So, look, you've said that this film is violent, but not for the sake of violence. Like, it's not... Gratuitous. Not, yeah, not, not, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's not aiming to be gratuitous, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, can we learn anything from John Wick as a person? Yeah, as the guy? Yeah, well, you know what? Yeah, I think there's definitely something you can learn. It's really kind of, really, are you willing to kind of take a stand when you make a decision, especially in things in your past? That many times, and what, what he has to do, I mean, he's coming up a whole... Uh, up against a whole group of assassins, I guess, and what this, but really he's taking a stand because he wants out and he wants to make sure that no one brings him back in. And I think what it really, the lesson that we can really kind of take away from that, even, even from a Christian perspective, there's a Christian lesson you can take from this. Well, mainly that sometimes the decisions that we make in life and really if we're choosing to follow God's path and what we really want to do for God, sometimes we're not going to necessarily be that popular. 
We're not necessarily going to be getting support from those that maybe we even consider friends or even those that we love, but that yet really we can really understand and see that if God is behind it and really God is behind the decisions that we make, that we need to take that stand and be willing to kind of cop it, as it were, in regards to that. Because we also might have to make choices of getting out of something that we're involved with that we come to understand God's not really into at all. And you might have to make this hard call and there might be some massive consequences, but you might actually have to move on from where you once were to head in a new direction, not unlike John Wick. Exactly. And that's and it's completely what really kind of what this film kind of takes us to. Not that there's a Christian theme. I'm not trying to kind of put something on there, but what you can learn from that is that you can really understand that really to kind of time, sometimes you're just going to have to take a stand and really be able to willing to stand. But thankfully, as Christians, we can do that with faith in God. John Wick 2 opens at cinemas this Thursday, May 18, and it stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, and Australia's very own Ruby Rose. It's rightly rated MA15 Plus for language, and as we have said, extreme violence. Now, coming up on the big picture, we open the Keanu Reeves files to find, to explain how John Wick first became a megastar, and Ben celebrates the top five movie sequels that really worked. And here's a hint... Fast and Furious is not on the list. Welcome back to The Big Picture. Now, we were just talking about John Wick Chapter 2 and its leading man, Keanu Reeves. Reeves has been a long-standing, long-standing movie star, but it's quite possible that some people nowadays don't know even how he got to be that way. So on the line right now is Insights Managing Editor Adrian Drayton joining Ben and Russ for a special Vault segment about the formative films and hidden gems of Keanu Reeves' career. Hello, Adrian. Hello, how, how are you guys? Mate, we're, we're doing all right. Now, do you reckon it's possible that there are people out there right now that do not know where Keanu Reeves came from and how big a deal he actually is? Well, there definitely is. I've just done a quick poll of the office and the person I work with is, you know, 20s, had no idea that he did films in the 80s and 90s, but then, you know, she wouldn't because she was probably just born around then. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, so... Okay, Russ uh, and Adrian, so Adrian, where do we start with Keanu Reeves then? Well, if we want to start, like, some of my favourite films are things like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, mate, you had me at Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Love that that one. That was very early 80s, and so, and Parenthood was also in the 80s. I mean, what I might throw in is, for me, Keanu Reeves is a really versatile actor. Like, if you think about his sort of list of films... Yes, yes. Some of my favourites go from, you know, the goofball actor in Bill and Ted to Parenthood. Yes. And then through to more dramatic roles like River's Edge, The Devil's Advocate, My Own Private Idaho. And then kind of in the early 90s, he kind of morphed into a bit of an action star. Before, before we get to that, though, Adrian, I just want to pull you back to something you, you just said, that Keanu Reeves is versatile. Now, a lot of people would have a go at that and suggest that that's not actually true. But you, you're saying, based on these films, particularly through the 80s and 90s, that he did demonstrate a, a pretty broad range and was in a, 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 played a lot of different roles, even though he often gets thought of as the teen goofball. Absolutely, definitely. He's done a huge range of roles from, you know, goofy roles to dramatic, more dramatic roles, action star roles with Point Break and Speed and even Johnny Mnemonic, which is a sci-fi <laughs> That's oh, right. wow. Which, which didn't go so well, but you were just saying that in the sort of early 90s he morphed into an action star and that was really with Point Break and Speed, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, definitely. And then he's also been a romantic lead. So some of the early 90s films, things like A Walk in the Clouds mm. and uh, very early 2000s, I suppose, was The Boathouse with Sandra Bullock. So he's like a... I mean, those are some of my favourite films. Of, the of the, the Boathouse is one of your favourite films, Adrian? Really? Well, it's an interesting one because it's kind of a... 
he plays as someone who's passed on. So it's actually quite an interesting look at the afterlife. And, and it demonstrates, to your point, that Keanu Reeves has a very versatile range. He was also in Bram Stoker's Dracula, that Francis Ford Coppola film, and he, he acted was. in a Shakespeare adaptation right. that Kenneth Ken Branagh made, Much yep. Ado About Nothing. That's correct. That's so how big a deal. And that was all before he was in The Matrix. Exactly. So very versatile. I might also point out that my own private Idaho is a reimagining of Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth. Oh, is it, mate? Look at you. Yeah. You just made us sound smarter just by raising that in conversation. Adrian, thank you very much for joining us with that Keanu Reeves file and basically explaining pretty much to everyone in your office why they should go back and revisit the early films of Keanu Reeves. That was Adrian Drayton, Managing Editor of Insights Magazine. Insights Magazine has been behind the big picture since we started, oh, a lazy 100 and something episodes ago. If you go to insights.uca.org.au, you can check out all the cool stuff that they have on that site. And also, another big supporter of the big picture is Eternity Magazine, Eternity News. Go to eternitynews.com.au. Oh, yes. Top five time. Oh, yeah. You know ben McKechn, you, you know got top five for us yep. this week. and I thought I'd pull out the big guns this week. We were just talking about John Wick Chapter 2 before the break. So it got me thinking about sequels. got me thinking about what are the best sequels ever, the ones that really, really worked. And I tried to limit this list by not picking something terribly old because a lot of mm-hmm. old film series, you know, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, sure. Didn't really treat tr- sequels like they are today. They were more like a serial, like the next installment of a TV show. But I was trying to pick something. I'll go on and explain what, what I tried to pick. Also, I didn't pick third or fourth or fifth films in the list. And something from Fast and Furious will not appear on this list. Wow. There's a spoiler alert from Thank the kickoff. <laughs> will not appear. Oh, Tokyo Drift? What? <laughs> Five. Here's a place I'm going to start that you might not expect me to start. At number five, Before Sunset from 2004. I wow, haven't gone man. for a blockbuster series at all, gentlemen. Before Sunset 2004. This is independent film to the yep. nth degree. Um, look, this was released nine years after the original film, that the one that came before it, Before Sunrise. Set, that was in 1995. It was set in one night on one night in Vienna, and it was basically following two characters played by Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, Jesse and Celine. This is directed by Richard Linklater. It was a fantastic yeah. film before Sunrise about two people meeting the kind of chemistry and conversations that can happen around that. And what often happens at the end of that kind of film is you're left thinking, I wonder what happened next. And particularly when in that original film, they were saying we should meet up six months later. Well, they didn't meet up six months later. They met nine years later. And Before Sunset is basically the same movie, but you get the development of these characters across nine years of their lives that they've been separated by. So it really worked and it justified its own existence by being a further examination of these real of this couple that seem like real people mm. and actually getting to follow them in real time across the distance that's been separating them. But also the movie itself is shot in real time. It basically goes for an hour and he's on his way to the airport. Because this, this is brought to us by the same director who really loves these timeline things with Boyhood, right? Yeah, yeah Richard Linklater yeah, made yeah, yeah. Boyhood as well. But I actually think Before Sunset, Before Sunrise are better than that Oscar winner from a couple okay. of years. Yeah. Boyhead, Boyhood. So at number five, Before Sunset. Four. 
This is a little bit more of an expected choice. I could have gone with Weekend at Bernie's 2. <laughs> Even Big Mama's House 2. I mean, they're the expected choices, right? That's what you I think. I was actually kind of disappointed. Yeah. That's what you think's going to tumble out of my Sam mouth. What about Garfield to a Tale of Two Kitties? <laughs> yeah, see? Like, all, all of these were massive, massive contenders, right? And, and they still may show... That still may show up on the list, Sam. Classics. Like, we haven't... We, we're still right. at number four. We're already yeah, at number right. four. Instead, I thought, instead of The Tale of Two Kitties, The Dark Knight up on screen... What I really liked about The Dark Knight and something that plenty of people really liked about it is it's a sequel that takes a story in rich and quite progressive directions. It also adds in new characters and it's, and it even allows that new one new character in particular, Heath Ledger's The Joker, to almost overshadow, and I think a lot of people actually argue he does overshadow, mm, the does. lead does, character, yeah. and it's not to the detriment of that entire trilogy. <laughs> Aliens. From 1986, Ooh, uh, there's yeah. another Alien film at cinemas at the moment. I'm going to say too, like, what a great title. Aliens? From Alien to Aliens. I know. See what Better they than did Alien 2. Yeah, yes, that's right. Really, definitely. really clever. They anyway, went with continue. They just more aliens. And that's what it does do in <laughs> the film. That's what it does. And Blue one up. of the reasons I picked it is because it's bigger... And some would argue better. I'm not, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but it definitely crams in more action and goes off in wildly different directions whilst without ruining the original film. Right. The original film was directed by Ridley Scott, much more of like a tense horror thriller in space. James Cameron, now most famous for Avatar and Titanic, took Aliens, the sequel. He's got some tension and chills in there, but he put in hand cannons and dopey marines and girl power showdowns and brought them to the fore, turned it effectively into blockbuster entertainment, something that you may not have expected to have gone that way. Right. And again, he didn't ruin it. He didn't ruin what Alien was. Some of the other sequels you could argue did that, mm. the longer the Alien franchise kicked on. But Aliens definitely did not. And special mention at this point to another James Cameron film, Terminator 2. I was going to say. Which I think yeah, did a very similar thing, where he went bigger and more action, but didn't ruin it, and it became a landmark sequel. And also, an Australian nod, Mad Max. If you've seen the original Mad Max and you jump to Mad Max 2, which is called The Road, War the Road, Road Warrior, Warrior in the yeah. US. Oh, love Russ, that The film, Road yeah. Warrior, for the Americans out there. Thank you. Did the same thing. More action, bigger, expanded its universe, didn't destroy the original, but I think Aliens is the best example of that. Two. The Godfather Part 2. Oh, wow. 1974, released two years after the original Godfather. It's the first sequel to win Best Picture Oscar. Interesting fact. Mm. Did you know that Science of the Lambs is effectively a sequel? Because yeah. there was an original Hannibal Lecter movie called Manhunt that was released in the 80s. And, that, and Science of the Lambs won a Best Picture Oscar. So it's, that's another sequel that's won an Oscar. But... Godfather Part Two is pretty much the legendary one that mm. the sequel that won an Oscar and deservedly so. And where would you go next with the Godfather series after the original was about a son gradually taking on this corrupting family business? You would go to how the son's moral descent, like he descends into being a mafia boss, contrasted with how his father rose and rose into that position across continent. So you get this great contrast between Al Pacino's Michael Corleone character and Vito Corleone played uh, as a younger man by Robert De Niro, all up in the one film mm. that somehow has got something to do with America and capitalism and mafia and gangsters. And it won an Oscar and it deserved to. Also, a special nod goes to Empire Strikes Back, which I think does a similar thing to what Godfather right. 2 does in, its, in the shape of its trilogy. Yeah. It's a standalone movie, but it's definitely a bridge from the first film to the third. But let's just not talk about Godfather 3. I was going to pick Godfather 2 at number one because that's the, like, the, the cinema lover's like, choice. But for the broadest possible audience that I could think of, 
to get hit everybody, I thought Care Bears Movie 2, A New Generation. Oh, no, I yes, didn't. Right, yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> Toy Story 2 from 1999. Yes. Toy Story Great 2, 9 Four choice. years mm-hmm. after the original. Because I think this sequel does what a lot of sequels do, which is it's repetitive. It's got the same characters, largely the same situations. It's done over and over again. Often we complain that that's what sequels do. But with Toy Story 2, it was fantastic. And deep down, we should admit that the reason there are so many sequels is because we as audience members love to go back to sequels because we love the fact that it's the same thing over and over again. And Toy Story 2 is one of the best examples of Emperor's New Clothes, where Mm. you basically trot out exactly the same thing, but you do it in such different ways, add some new characters, new situations. But basically, it's all about finding your place and your gang and your purpose. And that's what Toy Story 2 offers all of us. The dream that our toys actually do live. Right? And that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Woody was kidnapped. <gasps> Woody once risked his life to save me. I couldn't call myself his friend if I weren't willing to do the same. I'm packing you your angry eyes, just in case. Let's move, move, move! Geronimo! <laughs> to infinity and beyond! Don't talk to any toy you don't know! I've cried a lot through that movie. Mm-hmm. Great yep. choice, man. Best sequels ever. I'm crying now. <laughs> Excellent top five. All right, well, coming up on The Big Picture next week, we're going to have a bigger, action-packed look at the entire Alien franchise. And the movie version of The Shack arrives. Should you plan a visit? Mm, Mark Hadley's going to return, and we're also going to have more TV and movie surprises than you can poke a universal remote at. I'm going to be Ben McKechnie next week. I won't be here next week, but I'm still Russ Matthews. Catch you later. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world.